Good morning, guys. How are y'all? It's good to see you guys today. Um, so I don't have like a, a verse to tell you to go to just yet uh, for this. Um, we're starting a brand new series this morning, and, um, and I'm, we're basing this series on a book uh, that's titled um, This Is Our Time, Everyday Myths in Light of the Gospel, and this will take us through really until early June. And um, so in this series, we're going to be looking at uh, modern-day myths, the things that are floating around in our culture, um, little catchphrases, ideas that many people just latch onto and see them as truth. And we're going to be looking at a different kind of myth um, each Sunday. And you might ask, okay, what's a myth? Um, So here's a definition of what a myth uh, might be. It's a big overarching story that we live by as we try to answer life's big questions. So questions like, uh, what's the point of life? Or why are we here? Or um, how do we find happiness? Uh, these kinds of myths tend to drive our behavior. So you might hear um, catchphrases in our culture, things like, follow your heart. You ever heard that before? You've heard that, just people say it. Um, they say it as if it's just uh, the truth. And everyone's supposed to follow your heart. Or how about this one? As long as you're happy. As long as you're happy. doesn't matter what you do, as long as you're happy. And uh, so we, we hear these catchphrases in our culture and even as believers, we can tend to buy into them and adopt them as our own. So we're going to talk about um, these different kinds of myths each week. And in each talk, you're going to hear three movements in each talk that we do. The first movement you're going to hear is what I call the longing. Or what's in this book, it's called the longing. So behind these myths, uh, there's always this deep longing or desire. And this is often a God-given thing that is behind these uh, myths we're going to talk about. Um, so we, we, we need help to find uh, what are the longings behind these myths that you and I tend to believe. Um, Christians are often guilty of, of just pointing out to our culture, like, this is what's right, this is what's wrong. But we do a poor job pointing out the, the longing that's often a God-given longing behind some of the things that they believe. And so we're going to try to unpack these things as this series um, plays out. The second movement we're going to look at each week is called the lie. So while there are some deep longings that all of us have, that everyone has, there is a lie that is behind um, these myths that we're believing. So if there's one thing I know about, I think it's safe to say everyone hates being lied to. We we acknowledge that. Um, But I will say, I think, especially teenagers, like you hate being lied to. You don't like being lied to by your friends. Um, you especially, this is exactly why I think you question authoritative figures. I won't mention like what kind you might question, but you tend to question authoritative figures because you're not sure you can trust them. Maybe you've been let down by um, authoritative figures or institutions and, and you feel like um, maybe someone or an institution lied to you in some way or deceived you in some way, and you feel like, I can't, I can't trust people that have authority and power. And uh, so I think everyone hates, hates being lied to, but I think especially at your stage, like you're, you're walking through life right now already mis, uh, distrusting lots and lots of people, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Trevin Wax, he says this, if we do not expose the lies at the heart of the stories in our society, we imply that the Christian view of the world is just one option among many, just one way of finding 
fulfillment. So if we don't really uh, do a good job as believers in exposing the lie behind some of these myths, we're, not gonna be, we're just going to look at the Christian life or the Christian way of doing things as just another option among many other options. So we'll look at the lie each week. And then we're going to get to um, the light and how the light of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, doesn't just expose the lies we'll talk about, but exposes... Um, so someone's calling me up here. I've got to silence my phone. Should I answer it? Should I answer it? No, I'm not going to answer it. It's probably one of you guys trying to play a trick on me, maybe. Um, I always silence my phone, but except for today. And it, it, no one's called me like in five years on this stage until now. So uh, just coincidental, I guess. Um, so we're going to look at how the light of the gospel uh, uh, sheds um, truth on the lies we'll talk about in the coming weeks. The good news about Jesus doesn't just expose the lie, but has to answer the great longings that our society is looking for and seeking after. So we're going to look at those three movements, the longing, the lie, and the light. Uh, A guy named John Perkins says, the job of an evangelist is to connect God's good news with people's deep yearnings. So our job is to show people the longing that's behind their actions and expose the lie and then point them to the light of the gospel. And that's kind of the movement you're going to hear the next few weeks in this series. Um, this is not going to be a, a, a series where we're going to look at like an entire section of Scripture and unpack it like we normally do. Um, we'll be looking at Scripture, but it's going to be like in little chunks. And we're going to spend a lot of time today talking about um, a big cultural issue that we find in our society today. So we're going to, um, I want to expose you though first to uh, one just short passage, Psalm 46, verse 10. This will be our main text. It's very, very simple. You probably know it by heart already. But Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. That's our verse for today. That's it. All right? Be still and know that I am God. We're going to come back to this verse a little bit later on. But here's our title for today. Our title for today is Your Phone is a myth teller. Your phone is a myth teller. Now, I know when we start to dive into, um, we get applicational on these kinds of things, your eyes start to roll and glaze over, and we know how that works out. But um, we're going to look at something that, that many of you seem as just kind of tame and just like, that's just how society is now, I guess, and really look at some of the longings and the lies our culture is selling us as it pertains to technology, but especially as it pertains to the thing that um, almost every single person in this room possesses right in front of you, all right? And uh, so this morning, I'm going to expose, I'm going to spend a lot of time exposing some of the lies before we get to the light. And I think I have to with this topic, because if I don't, like, you won't take it seriously. If I just jump into the you know, the ending part of this message, you're not going to take it very seriously at all. So I'm trying to unpack everything as we go for you. Now, when my kids hear the word phone, they think of this. This is what they picture when they think of a phone. And I'm always blown away at the difference, though. Like my son's 11. Is he 11 or 10? He is 10. I keep saying he's almost 11. So I'm used to saying 11. And uh, he's 10. And I'm a good father. And my daughter is seven. 
I got that one right. Yes, winning. Hashtag winning. All right, so um, he's, uh, he's 10 and she's 11, and my wife is really upset right now. So, so y'all pray for um, the, the, the love of Jesus to come out of her, okay, um, as we spend the rest of our day together later. Um, but when my kids hear the word phone, they picture that. When I heard the word phone at their stage of life, I pictured this, right? That's the only thing. That was the phone. That was even the color of the phone in my house when I was growing up. Like, ugly 70s green, right? And that was the phone that we had on the wall of our house. Have you guys ever seen a phone like this before? Raise your hand if you've seen a phone like this. Have you used a phone like this? Raise your hand. Keep your hand up. Who still has a phone like this in their house? Yes. You have a phone? You have a rotary dial phone? Does it work? Wow. That's one person. I think there was one. Anyone else say they had that in their house still? You guys, and y'all are friends, so this friendship works out. Y'all have a lot in common. That's awesome. So we had this phone in, in my house, and my parents were old school. So even once we got, once they developed, and they had, like, the touch button phone, and they had, like, the cordless in the house, my parents were insistent on having this thing um, in spite of advances in technology. And uh, this phone, though, was a, a test of patience because you had to literally dial. That's where they get the word dial from. Like, you don't dial your cell phone. You have buttons. You have little just, you know, computer screen buttons. This was a real dial. That's where they get the word dial from. You dial someone's number, and you got to put your finger in there and, like, turn it and then let it go. Right? Every number. And God forbid there were a lot of nines and zeros. Like, you could dial zero, go make a sandwich, come back, and then continue with your phone dialing. Right? That's how long it took. And uh, in my house, there was no privacy. So this, this phone was on the kitchen wall, and the kitchen and the hallway was connected, and then there was like a living room around the corner. And the cord, if you wanted privacy, you had to stretch it down the hallway and then into the living room, and you couldn't even sit because it wouldn't reach to the couch. You had to sit around the corner next to the piano and just talk quietly. And, uh, and so no privacy. You had to whisper and still everyone could still hear your conversation. And then there was that cord. That cord. You know the cord I'm talking about? Like, it's, it's only in this condition when it comes out of the box. Um, but after, like, you know, a couple of months, it looks like a rat nest, right? And you try to untangle it, and it's just hopeless. And you're like, who invented this thing? He should be fired. Um, but there's the cord. And so everything about it was just really inconvenient. At least at the time, we thought this is what a phone is. But looking back now, we're like, how did we ever survive, like, with that? Um, You'd be talking on the phone, and, like, the receiver would get all hot and clammy, and you're just like, ugh, right? And it's just, just, you look back on that, and you go, how was that ever um, what we saw as the phone when now we have this thing, which does a million other things? It just blows my mind whenever I think about how technology changes and advances so quickly. Um, my dad can tell you when he first saw a television. 
He can tell you about the experience of first seeing a television. I can't because I grew up with television. I know many of you, you can't um, think about the first time you saw the Internet because you've grown up with the Internet. I can tell you when I first saw the Internet. This is crazy. I was a junior in high school. It's crazy. And I was visiting this college to see if I wanted to go to this college for, for my college years. And this guy I knew from my high school was, I was in his dorm room, and he's like, yeah, there's this really cool thing. He didn't call it. I forget what he called it. He pulls up this thing. He's like, I can look at NBA basketball scores from last night on this computer. I'm like, no way. That's amazing. How do you do that? And he's showing me. Back, back then, this is like 1993. Back then, there were 600 websites in the universe. Like the, it was like the early 90s. Like no one knew what this thing was called. And so things began to progress. Um, in like the mid, early mid-90s, there was like the first laptop shaped like a suitcase. Right? It was huge. Then um, 96 was the first emails being sent. And I can remember that where I had friends in other states. And they were like, isn't this amazing? We can like type here and send it over there. It's amazing. And they're just blown away at this new thing called email. And then 98, um, Google was developed. 99, um, there was texting across networks. In 2004, Facebook comes onto the scene. 2005, there's YouTube. 2006, there's Twitter. 2010, Instagram. 2011, there's Snapchat. I can remember the first student in this room that had something besides a flip phone. And I remember, we're sitting, I said, hey, who has a, it was called a Blackberry. Okay, don't ask. But I said, who has a BlackBerry or something better? And this one guy was like, I do. And he was like a celebrity. Everyone's like, oh, look at this guy, you know. And then uh, I remember, um, this is not a surprise, I can recall the first person that I knew in this group that had an iPhone. They got the the smartphone. And his name was Anthony Garcia. (laughs) Big surprise, right? And we're on a mission trip to New Orleans, and Anthony was in the van with me. He was a student back then. And he was like the informational guru for the entire trip. Be like, Anthony, pull up directions to this restaurant. Anthony, can you Google this? Anthony, can you Google that? He was like the go-to person for the entire trip for anything and everything because he was the guy that had the smartphone, the only person that had the smartphone. This is like not many years ago at all when this happened. So... um, Your iPhone, if you have a smartphone, is only 11 years old. It's the same age as my son. Actually, I'm kidding. He's 10. The iPhone's 11. So I was making sure you're paying attention. But in 2004, only half of all teenagers, okay, 2004, only half of teens owned a cell phone at all, right? Just let that sink in for a minute, what the difference is in how you're growing up versus how they were growing up. Recently, uh, there's this guy that goes to our small group, and uh, most of us in the group know his story, know his background. But this new woman shows up to our small group, and she did not know his story. And one day, a group, he's looking at his phone, and he's like around 38 years old, I think, and he's just looking at his phone, and he just goes, this is amazing, like all this texting and and just social media. It's just, just amazing. And she goes, what? Where have you been? Like living under a rock? 
and everyone is kind of laughing at her question to him. And, uh, and she's like, what? And he's like, uh, I've been in prison for 15 years. So she obviously feels horrible at this point. <laughs> but I'm trying to point out to you, this guy spent 15 years in prison and just got out like two years ago and just now discovered texting and social media. That wasn't even a thing back then. And he's just still blown away at like how fast things have moved in 15 years. Imagine if we took you away for 15 years from this point and you had nothing like that for 15 years. What it would be like when you got back here? Isn't that crazy to just imagine and think about? And so much has changed over the course um, in our world. Um, We have changed technology, but it's also changed us. And we're going to talk a lot about how it's done that to us today. So it's easy to push all this aside and say, like, oh, this is just foolish. Uh, But there is a longing behind much of what you and I do with this thing. And there are some deep longings to be exposed and talked about and some lies to be exposed as well. So here's the longing, I think, that lies behind much of what you and I do with this little machine right here. And it says the longing is we want to be known and loved. We want to be known and loved. And this longing is a God-given longing. In many ways, it's good and right. But this longing, I think, leads to some unhealthy things. And I don't want to just pick on, uh, I don't know what gender in the room is more prone to selfies. I'm not going to say which one because I don't want to offend anybody, but there probably might be one that's maybe more prone to that than um, the other one. But it's, it's just so normal. I mean, the selfie craze is like just what everyone does now. But there are times when I'm scrolling through a feed and I'm just like, just, just, what are we all doing? Like what? I'm like, that person puts so much thought into that particular selfie. And I, and I think through like what they had to do to actually pull this off. And then they went and were like, I'm going to go post this. And then everyone's going to comment and, and like it and love it, whatever. And uh, so we go and we post something. Maybe you're feeling down. Maybe you're not feeling down. You're just feeling like, I just want to post whatever. And um, you wait for the, the comments and the likes to roll in. And, uh, and imagine just how you would feel if the next one you post, imagine if no one said anything and no one liked it, no one retweeted it, no one loved it, whatever button they want to push. And you would say, well, I, I wouldn't care. I'd say, no, you wouldn't. You would care. You would care, at least a little bit. A tiny, tiny little bit you would care. And there's all these weird rules. Um, I don't know because I don't do this, but I've heard. There's all these weird little selfie rules. Like you can post them, but not too many because you don't want to seem like you're fishing for compliments. Um, almost anyone can like the photo, but you're, and your close friends are allowed to comment. But if that one guy that you barely know makes a comment, it's kind of creepy. I've heard. And it's not just what's said that communicates something. It's what's not said. If your two best friends don't comment, something's wrong. 
And if they don't comment today, tomorrow, then something's up. Something's up, something's up with our friendship. And so what's really behind all of this that we're talking about? Um, I think there's something spiritual going on um, that's behind all this. And it's easy to see all this as just innocent, but I think it's, it's far from it. Trevin uh, Wax says this, We want to be known because God gave us this desire, but we feel insecure about being known as we truly are because we know we are sinners. So what do we do? We, we, we present what we want others to see, not what we truly are. So there's something spiritual going on here. I don't think we can deny that. There's something spiritual happening here. And because of the digital world, you have to manage real life. Like, you have to deal with the anxiety and apprehension of walking into a school building each day and walking into a cafeteria wondering where your friends are. Is anybody going to be there for you to sit with? Walking into a church building feeling the exact same way And so you already have real world to manage, your real life to manage, but you now have this second world that you have to manage as well. So philosopher James K.A. Smith puts it this way, the home used to be a place to let down your guard, freed from the perpetual gaze of your peers. You could almost forget yourself. You could at least forget how gawky and pimpled and weird you were. Freed from the competition that characterizes teenagedom. No longer. The space of the home has been punctured by the intrusion of social media such that the competitive world of self-display and self-consciousness is always with us. It used to be that you only had to play the social game at school in real school. Now you got to play it 24-7, and there's no escape from it. Home is no longer a refuge, and it's why so many of us, I think, are anxious and worried and, and fretful. Just imagine this for a second. What if starting tomorrow for an entire month, you didn't have to manage any kind of social media persona whatsoever? What if it just went away for a month? What, what would that feel like? for you. And so now we get to the, the lie that we're trying to expose. And the lie is this. You are the center of the universe. You are the center of the universe. Social media is a game. And in high school, you win by being relevant. That's one of the biggest things I know that many of you are concerned about is, am I relevant? How can I make myself be relevant to the people that I know in my circle? And so you give all these likes so you can get all these likes. You give so you can get. But what if the whole thing is one big rigged game? What if the whole thing is a big lie? What if we're all being lied to? I have this cousin uh, who's much smarter than me, and he went to Yale. And uh, he graduated a few years ago. He goes to Yale. Um, He's very articulate, really smart. And uh, his job out of Yale was to work for Google. And you might think, well, that's a dream job. Like everyone in those Ivy League schools are trying to get into these, these really competitive companies. So he makes it into Google, moves out to San Francisco, moves to Tokyo with Google, flat all over the world. And he's got this, what seems like a really, really cool job. Whenever I would see him, I'd say, hey, man, how's the job going? And he'd be like, yeah, it's okay. 
And I'm thinking, like, but you work for, like, one of the coolest companies in the world. You could drive a scooter around the campus, right? Like, everywhere you go. It's a lot of fun, isn't it? He's like, it's okay. And after uh, three or four years of that, um, he quits. He quits Google. He was actually working for YouTube, but it was under the Google thing, right? And so I saw him at Christmas, and I'm like, so, man, what happened? Like, now he lives in um, Taiwan learning Chinese. That's what he's doing. That's his hobby is learning Chinese now. And uh, so he is um, disenfranchised with the whole thing. And, so I, and you're like, wait, wait a second. You did this amazing education, had this amazing first job. You're working at, at a company everybody wants to work at. What happened? And he's not a believer at all. He becomes soured on the whole thing because this was his job. Think about this. His job working for YouTube was to try to meet the goal. YouTube had this goal of one billion hours viewed daily on their site. They want worldwide one billion hours viewed on their site. Why? Advertising dollars. It's all just driven advertising. And so here he is, this Yale graduate, really smart guy, really cool job, and yet your job is to try to meet YouTube's goal of one billion daily hours viewed worldwide. And so as you walk around the malls and and the places of shopping and you see teenagers just like video after video after video, on the one hand, you're like, cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. On the other hand, you're like, what am I doing to our culture? (laughs) What am I doing to our society? And that's what he began to wrestle with. And so he quit. He's not the only person that has quit these kinds of jobs. You know the guy who, there was a guy, there was one guy, apparently, who invented the like button on Facebook. That was one dude, apparently. Do you know that one guy has quit Facebook and is, is, is kind of calling out the whole industry in the same way that my, my cousin wants to do? Because he realizes the, the treadmill that everyone's on, just trying to get affirmation and and value and affirmation, affirmation daily from these little machines. So the, the man who invented the like button dislikes the like button. And so he quit. He quit. He realized the lie of all of it. And I think um, these lies have some drastic consequences. So we're going we're gonna to speed through this next section here because I want to make sure we get to the end here for the discussion. Um, I've been reading a book called 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. And it's really um, got a lot of scripture throughout the entire thing as well. Not just a cultural read, but also a scriptural read. And um, I'm going to summarize this book in the next few minutes. Just fi- five minutes, I'm going to summarize the whole book for you, point by point. I love this book because he doesn't, he doesn't bash technology. He shows in many ways that technology is a gift from God. And it's his common grace. And I would even count this. This is God's common grace. I'm not here to bash the technical media world. I'm here to say there is God's common grace at work in the the creations of mankind, yet we must not buy into the lie that our society is trying to sell us. And so I thank God for technology, but at the same time, it cannot become idolatry. We've got to be honest about some of these negatives. So 
here's the points of this book. The first thing they say is we are addicted to distraction. Most of us don't want to admit that we're addicted to something when we are. We say things like, I can stop when I want. I just don't want to. That's kind of the definition of addiction, I think. Um, It leads to anxiety, depression, just this treadmill that we're constantly on. All of us have what I call, this is me included, um, spiritual ADD. Whenever I'm preparing a sermon up here on a Sunday morning, I think to myself, is this sermon, is it going to pass the cell phone test? Like, what's a cell phone test? On Sunday morning when I come in here to preach to you guys, I picture you doing this because some of you guys are. You're doing this. You're like, this better be good because if it's not, I got this, right? And you're ready. You're waiting. You're waiting. You're like, it's not not good. It's not good. I'm going to go to my phone. And there's this competition that I feel for your attention because all of us have spiritual ADD. We can't sort of be in a deep thought for more than five seconds or we're out. We're doing something else. Everyone's competing. The second thing, we ignore our flesh and blood. I see this most uh, Sundays and Wednesdays. I do this most Sundays and Wednesdays and every other day of the week. It's our security blanket. Um, Each one of us, we walk into a room with, where there's real flesh and blood people. And if we look around the room, we don't know anybody. We're like, um, I know no one here. It is time to check all my apps, right? And so we're on our phones. Or we're playing a game. And so we ignore our flesh and blood, and we get caught up in a machine, a little mini computer. Christianity is a flesh and blood religion. Jesus came in flesh and blood to be with us. Christians are called to be with one another, together, real flesh and blood. We don't ignore our flesh and blood. Thirdly, we crave immediate approval. You notice how whenever you're you're curating your online um, conscience, You flock to people just like you. You block people that are not like you. And you start to create this this world where it's just people just like you. And you, you want their approval. They want your approval. And in the church, in the church we see there should be people that the only reason why they're together is because of the gospel and not because they have these other worldly things in common, but it's because of the gospel and Jesus that brings them together. And then, uh, fourthly, we lose our literacy. I have sensed this in myself. I mean, if you guys don't know, my job demands that I have to read a lot. I have to read a lot to preach here, to preach up on the main service. I also just like to read in general. Um, I love to learn. But I will tell you, this thing has damaged my literacy. This thing has damaged and, and taken and stolen many, many moments, many books, many chapters from me um, as I want to read and learn and grow, and I, yet I find myself just doing mind-numbing things on this little machine up here. And so we lose our literacy. Some people say, well, I just I don't like to read. 
It's like, well, no, no, you read, you read, you just read, you read like this, right? That's how you read. But pick up a book, pick up your, the Word of God, not digital form, but pick up the Word of God and just dive into it. We lose our literacy because of this, this issue. Uh, next, we feed on the produced. Pretty obvious. We feed on the produced. Everything, most of what you see is, is produced in some way and not reality. We become like what we like. There's this concept in Scripture. When you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's this idea all through Scripture, you become what you worship. So if we worship idols, we become like the idols. We become lifeless. We lose our vitality. We become dead and lifeless people when we worship dead and lifeless things. I have a relative back home who um, her parents have no restrictions for her, and she's 10, and she has a phone, and she gets up, she comes to breakfast, she has the phone in front of her, and she's just playing games the entire morning and throughout lunch and throughout the day. And it's like, my, my kids aren't allowed to do that, but she's allowed to do that. And so my kids want to go play, and she's like, no, I'm, I'm good. And she just wants to play on her phone the whole day. And she gets this look on her face when she's doing this. And it's like her, it's just sad. It's like she's glazed over. Her, her tongue's kind of halfway hanging out of her mouth. A little bit of drool coming out, I think. And she's just in this just game-playing state. And I'm like, you're just, you're just lifeless. You, you have no vitality. We become like what we like. We get lonely. We get lonely. We are more connected now than ever before, and yet people are experiencing anxiety, depression, loneliness like never before because um, they have the semblance of connection but not real connection, and so we get lonely. Next, we get comfortable in secret sins. Guys, I could spend, as you know, an hour on that one alone. But we get comfortable in secret sins. And my biggest concern is, I'll just say it outright, my biggest concern is that right now we are raising a generation of porn addicts. And it's going to be, it is already devastating families, marriages. And it's not just one gender anymore. We are raising a generation of porn addicts. The next statement, we lose meaning. We lose meaning. How often are you scrolling through something, your feed, and it just goes from like super serious to super light real quick, doesn't it? Um, you see this gut-wrenching post about uh, human trafficking, and you're like, oh, no, no, too heavy, too serious. Let's watch a puppy video. And so we have this way of just losing meaning and not letting things that should hit us and be emotional for us, um, they just become light. We just we gloss over and we go on to the next thing. And so we, we lose meaning. The next one, we fear missing out. You can be on vacation in Hawaii with your family and be looking at your feed and at what your, your friends back in Central Texas are doing, and it could be something small, and you could feel jealous of them. 
because you're not there. You fear missing out. Everyone calls it what? What do they call it? FOMO, right? Fear missing out. The next one, we become harsh to one another. I can't tell you how many sad displays I've seen of people, even in our own church, uh, going at it on Facebook over topics like politics and racism and theology. And it's really just kind of sad. And whenever the, the word is, is, whenever there's written word digitally, we tend to be harsher than whenever it's real flesh and blood right in front of you. This is why Paul, whenever he's writing, even he's writing a tough letter to one of the churches, and he's rebuking them, he says, I want to see your face so I can hug you and embrace you because he feels bad for what he's saying in written word. And he longs to see him face to face so he can embrace them. And so when we're apart, we tend to be harsher. We're together flesh and blood. We tend to be softer, more gracious, more forgiving, more merciful. And then lastly, we lose our place in time. We get so caught up in the present that we forget the past. And by the past, I mean Scripture, what God is doing in the people of God and what he will continue to do in the people of God, the church. God wants his people to remember. All throughout Scripture, there's this idea of remember, remember, remember. And yet, whenever we're so caught up in the triviality of the present, we cannot remember what God's done in the past. We're focused so much on the here and now in these earthly trivialities. So I want to go back to this psalm, Psalm 4610. Be still and know that I am God. There is a connection, I think, between uh, stillness and knowing who God is. It also implies whenever you're not still that we forget who God is. And I think it's safe to say that we all, this includes me, that we all, we lack stillness. We lack stillness. And so here's where the, the light of the gospel comes in. Here's the light. God fully knows and he still loves. God fully knows and he still loves. This is the light of the gospel for us. You see, we're in this, we're in this predicament. We, we want to be known, but we're afraid to be known. But God fully knows you. Whatever your past is, whatever your present is, God fully knows and he fully loves. And this is the light of the gospel. I want you to look at Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where Paul writes, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you and I try to deal with our sin and brokenness apart from Christ, we're just going to hide stuff. There's a picture that he used in the book, Modern Day Myths. He says, the cell phone becomes like modern day fig leaves to cover up our brokenness. I love that. And so the beauty of the gospel is that we can step into the light in all of our brokenness, you and I, putting our faith and our trust in Jesus and his work for us on the cross. This longing that we all have, this longing to be known and to be loved is really only met in the gospel and the message of Jesus. 
that's where it's truly met. So I've, I've intentionally avoided this talk being like a, here's five steps for you to take in this, this world that we're all in right now. But, and the reason for that is because I want you to see the deep longing that we're trying to fill. Because if I just sit there and go, here's some steps, bam, bam, bam. Well, you're going to be like, what's why? I'm trying to show you the longing that's behind all this and the lie. And then point to the light of the gospel in hopes that that leads to life change. Um, but just for fun, I mean, here's a couple things that, um, that my family and I do. And we're not experts at this at all. And we're actually pretty horrible. I'm pretty horrible at it. Um, but we try to take breaks, long breaks from this thing um, and leave it in separate rooms whenever I'm with the family or, or not have it at the table where we're eating. Just little things like this. Here's the deal, guys. Repentance always looks like something. Repentance plays itself out in real physical ways in your life. And so, yeah, we take action because we acknowledge the, the lie that we're all being sold. And we want the gospel to change us. I heard recently someone said, um, everyone here knows who, uh, of course, they're super famous, uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines. Everyone knows who they are, right? All the girls are like, oh, yes. The silos, I love those. Um, so I've heard that at their new restaurant in Waco, not, not tried it out, it sounds amazing though, um, they had these things, this next picture, I think, and uh, at the tables. And you know why they have those on there? Um, it's for you to drop your phone in as you're eating because they want to encourage their guests to not ignore the flesh and blood that you're sitting in front of. And so, yeah, repentance should lead to change, where you make steps and you say, we're going we're gonna to do this differently. And so I'll just leave you with this. I mean, Chip and Joanna are two of the coolest people in the world right now, and so if they say you should do it, you should go do it. All right? And so um, that's my hope, guys, as we go through the series, that you're going to see the longing and the lie and the light of the gospel as it's shed on these cultural issues that we're all experiencing. Um, go ahead and do your questions at your tables there for a few moments.